Praise F4. How to talk to crazy people. A funny, moving, and altogether brilliant book on the challenges and peculiar insights of mental illness. Rather than simply describing a clinical condition, Donna Kakanj painstakingly evokes the complex language and thought patterns of what she deliberately calls craziness. The result is a book that would engage not only readers who have encountered, in personal terms, the challenges of mental illness, but also readers who wish to appreciate, in the broadest of ways, what is troubling and also beautiful about the human imagination itself. David Carriandi, author of Suko Iant, Governor General S. Award finalist. A rare and honest account of mania, depression and psychosis the book to read if you want to understand the suffering of mentally ill persons and the raw courage that one woman can muster. Donna struggles financially, socially, sexually, and spiritually to find peace from the minions of hell that inhabit her mind. Catherine Tapley Milton, author of Mind Full of Scorpions A poignant account of what it is like to live with a severe psychiatric illness. We see it vividly from the inside and truly sense how terrifying it can be to be psychotic. It is also a story of hope and optimism about what someone can achieve despite the continual setbacks, the oh-so-much-longer time to accomplish the things that others do with a lot less effort, the inevitable loss of friends, money and often family. This should be read by all those who work in mental health and all those who don't tea. It will give you a glimpse not of how scary it is to talk to a crazy person but how scared a crazy person is to talk to you. Anna Skazuska, Psychiatrist, University Health Network. To Mom. For being the best artist I know, and the most beautiful person I know, inside and out. To Dad. For growing into such a fantastic father, man and neighbor, and thank you for helping me to grow up, too. Crazy Talk. It's my last year of high school at Stephen Lee Cog Collegiate in Scarborough, Ontario. My friend Gina and I sit on the bus on our way to downtown Toronto. A man boards the bus and immediately screams at the passenger standing in the bus aisle who he thinks deliberately block his path. He S999, exclaims Gino. He S999. What does that mean? I ask. It means he is crazy, Gino says. He is from 999 Queen Street, a psychiatric hospital at the time, and he is a loon. I sit quietly and fidget with my hands. I stare at the man's facial tics and listen intently to his babble about spies and the devil coming in the end of the world. The following pages contain my voice and my own babble through 16 breakdowns over a five and a half year period. I ask that you please read, learn and understand what it is truly like to live a crazy life. 1. St. Mike's Hospital. The sounds of loud whirs, clangs and chimes force open my eyes. My mind stirs like a dropped rag. I cannot move my body. My chest, my waist and my legs are strapped to a gunny. I am in an ambulance. I raise my head and peer forward. Sky and hydro lines rush past. I see the black hair of the driver beside a brown-haired person in the passenger seat. A red-haired man sits beside me. When was the last time you ate? He asks. My eyes dart to the word paramedic on his arm badge. It feels as though pricks of nail ends scratch my brain. What is the last thing you remember? He continues. I stare at his blue uniform. Do you know what day it is? He asks. 
I look up at the net of first aid kit suspended above me, then shut my eyes to block out the paramedic. The frantic movement of the ambulance comes to a stop. A pause, a jerk, and then down, lower rush, rush, rush to precisely where? I keep my eyes shut and feel the gunny wheel over a smooth surface. Stillness. I am alone. Tears slip from beneath my closed eyelids. I feel a prick in my arm and open my eyes to see a plastic and steel towel beside me. An IV is in me. A jungle of noise surrounds me. I lie on the gunny. I lie on the gunny. I lie on the gunny. My mind screeches shriller than a dog and moves a whole lot faster than the fluid in the IV drip. I go over the questions asked in the ambulance. I don't remember the last time I ate. But it must have been Zaipanir from my favorite restaurant around the corner from where I live in Little India. I eat Zaipanir, made of spinach and cheese curds, every day. The last thing I remember is lying on my futon, surrounded by blood, wet and cold. I thought I was the Virgin Mary and that my stillborn bubby Jesus had passed through me. It must have been menstrual blood. I must have passed out. I know it is October of 1995. I look up at the nurse's station close to where my gunny lies in the hallway. Even without my wire-rimmed glasses, I can see the calendar on the wall. It's October 23. Why am I in the hospital? People in white and light blue uniforms rush back and forth around me. Why am I in the hospital? I shout at them. They keep rushing. Why am I in the hospital? I lower my voice this time. They keep rushing. Why am I in the hospital? I shout again. They sprint past me. No one stops to answer my question. After the tenth time, I feel frazzled, exhausted, worthless. I stand up and rip the IV out of my arm. My legs can still propel me. Wearing a light blue hospital gown, I stride through a bright red exit. I look around outside. I am at St. Mike's Hospital on Queen Street. The Bay Retail Store is southwest. I know I live east. I walk in that direction. Evil eyes are on me. I feel rage. A horn honks a violent blare. I panic. I glance over and see my dad driving his orange lader with my brother in the passenger seat. They yell. Come inside, Donna. Come inside. I keep walking, strutting, each angry, hateful step takes me towards home. No. The tough chipped sidewalk trips me up, crossing cars break my path and my dad jumps out and pushes me into his lader. I scream. I yell. I fight. I am back at St. Mike's. Inside four metallic grey walls, I lie on the bed and look at hell on the floor where shellacked white tiles join. I feel disjointed. I think about my favourite poster, the one I bought when I was at Carleton University where I graduated from journalism on June 17, 1994. The poster, one of the few on the walls of my small apartment where my $450 rent is soon due is a picture of four black men wearing 1940s hats standing around a pool table. One of them holds a cue. I look at the heavy grey steel door that faces me. Where is my cue to leave? I scream, I yell, I pray no response, I hear only my voice. Where is my knight in shining armor? Only the fluorescent squares on the ceiling shed any light. The doctors come. 
I know they are doctors because they wear white coats. Two of them enter the room. Do you know how long you've been in this state? One of them, a man, asks. I am not in any state. I just need to get out of here. We can t-release you until you calm down. Calm down? I am perfectly calm. My mind rages. My thoughts race. My insides churn. I must think quickly in order to get myself out of here. Do you realize that you've been screaming for an hour? The other one, a woman, asks. She stands beside the man doctor, both of them white ivory like ready to pierce me. Don't they realize I scream because they're detaining me against my will? I don't want to be here. I have committed no crime. I have committed mistakes, yes, but no crime. I want to be home, in my little apartment. I want to drink wine and listen to sad tapes. I am a peaceful person. I meditate every day. I jog six times a week. What am I doing here? I stay in the room for what feels like days, I don't know how long. The security guard outside the door keeps looking at me strangely. What is he looking at? He is the strange one. Doesn't he understand? This is a national emergency. I have to get out of this room because the women are coming to get me. Princess Diana, Oprah Winfrey, Princess Toro all those fine, beautiful women are coming to get me to join their group. I am going to be part of the gifted ten, ten powerful, strong women who will rule the world and save it from imminent disaster. They need to release me from this holding cell so I can reign back in Uganda. There I will be a princess, one of the gifted ten. Haven T. Any of them ever read W.E.B. Du Bois? The African-American writer and philosopher who believed that, when it comes to humans, there is an extraordinary 10% who will rule the world? My dad is really Ugandan dictator Idi Amin. He changed his name and identity and fled to Canada to escape his atrocities. I need to go back to Uganda to rule to be part of the world's ruling elite. It has been a cover-up for many years. I grew up thinking my father was a newspaper delivering PhD who drank too much. All along he was really Idiamin in hiding. In Canada, he held a reign of terror over our family instead of a country. But I never knew who he really was. Honestly officer, I didn't he. But now that I know the truth, now that I have finally figured everything out, I can right the wrongs that he has done. If the hospital will only release me, I can return to Uganda and be its ruler. Everything is silent when I see a white lab coat, glasses, white skin and brown hair into the room. My black eyes clash with his green eyes. He opens his mouth. So do I when I am getting out of here? When you calm down. He looks down at his brown clipboard. I want to call my lawyer. You have a lawyer? Get me the fuck out of here. The doctor is so close to the door, the back of his lab coat kisses it. You had a psychotic break, he says. We think you re schizophrenic. I twist my wrists inside the brown leather straps that shackle me to the bed. I clench my right hand empty. Where is my spear to pierce his ivory skin? Then I see the back of his head, and the heavy metal door closes. Silence. Shit. Get me the fuck out of here. I need to go home. I need to go home. I need to go to my home. I need to go home. I hear only the sound of my voice. I cry. Eventually, I sleep. I awake when I hear a bang.
a black woman in a white lab coat, with slick black hair to her chin, walks in. She carries a tray. Are you hungry, dear? Yes, I murmur. She places the tray on a table beside the hospital bed. I sit up and look at the food. An apple, an orange, a box of orange juice, and under a round, translucent plate cover, something that looks like chicken with hot vegetables that were definitely once frozen. We look and smile stiffly at each other. My stomach clenches audibly. GRRR. I look into her brown eyes. Thank you. She touches my kinky black hair. The same hair I usually tend as vigilantly as I tend the aloe plants on the huge veranda outside my second floor apartment. You should really do something with your hair, she suggests. She touches her straight hair. I touch my kinky hair. I like mine natural. I plan to keep it like this no matter what. I eat fast, in the nurse's presence, in my hospital cell. The nurse leaves. I stay. Constance. I know I am in trouble when they want to let me leave. It's my third day in the hospital. I stood as tall as the waistband of the light blue slacks my mother wore around the house when I was last in the hospital. I want to be home. When I was nine and ten years old, I would run and jump on a blue steel jungle gym with my brother and sister and my friends on Sunday mornings, while my mother was inside the church with her friends. When I was even younger, I spent a year learning how to play the organ with a brown-haired male cherub who gently encouraged me when I made mistakes. Go, Donna. Go. I want you to be able to play the organ in the church choir, my mother coaxed me before each lesson. After I graduate from Carleton University, I work in Ottawa, move to Toronto, then move back to Ottawa and no one has time for me. Not even my boyfriend who is finishing up his final year of journalism school. When the loneliness and silence choke me like a movie director's scarf, a friend gives me the phone number for a tarot card counselor. I take a chance. I desperately need to speak to someone. I call the number. Hello? I say. Hello, a deep voice responds. Is this Donna? Fear almost makes me scream. How did you know my name? I was expecting you to call. This is... Constance? Yes. She says nothing more. I was hoping you could help me. I hesitate. I mean, I was hoping I could come speak with you. It costs $300. I shrug. I have the money. Okay. Can I come tomorrow? Be here at 7 p.m. I live at 43 Burnson Avenue. The next morning at 8. I am in downtown Ottawa with a colleague, shooting high 8 video footage for an African-Canadian film to be presented at a video festival. I don't look at my watch until that night. It is almost 7. Should I go? I ask myself. I go to the washroom first and pee. As I wash my hands I look at my eyes in the mirror. The whites are bright red, just as they were in the morning. I grab some brown paper towels, dry my hands and hail a taxi to take me to 43 Burnson Avenue. It is 7.05 p.m. when I arrive at Constance's house. I am late. I don't even really know why I am here. As I turn to leave, the door opens. Donna? An Indian man stands before me. I nod. Constance is inside. Come. The walls are painted beige. A brown leather sofa sits at the far end of the room.
spectacular photographs of the Haker, Bangladesh lines one wall. On another, I recognize photos of Moscow, Beijing, Buenos Aires and New York from my favorite travel show on TV. Constance is seated at a small, round deco table. She stares at a chair opposite her and I sit down. She moves her hand to the left and turns on a small Panasonic CD player. I recognize the sounds of wind chimes, soft techno piano and I Inga's new age music. I feel a pinch calmer. Would you like some wine? I nod. White or red? Red. I almost shout. My core feels hollow. Constance wears a black and orange sari. Her long hair falls like a dark blanket from the top of her petite frame to her waist. I look down and see her bare feet in beige leather sandals. While Constance is in the kitchen pouring the wine, and the man's watches Wheel of Fortune from the sofa, I reach out and touch the multicolored paisley tablecloth. Vibrating with light reflected from the candlesticks, the colors white, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, Brown and purple all dance and touch in a party on the tablet top. Constance reappears. She sits quickly and places a glass of red wine in front of her. She places an identical glass of wine in front of me. She raises a set of bronze chimes I hadn't noticed before and rings them. Her eyes are pot black. I do not do this all of the time, Constance declares. I'm actually a lawyer. I just do this when people need help. I keep my eyes on the tablecloth. I wish I was out dancing. She opens a wooden box and gathers a rider weight deck of tarot cards from inside. She hands them to me. I take them. Think of your questions while you shuffle. I shuffle the cards. On one card, a woman, the high priestess, looks like Constance. She fascinates me. On another card, a man, the king of pentacles, reminds me of my dad. The nude woman on the Nine of Pentacles reminds me of myself. So do the images on the Nine of Swords and the Three of Wands. Constance deals out cards. I see that you are not happy with your job. You do? Yes. You do not like it, but another job is coming soon. Someone you met over the summer is coming back into your life and a man will lead this woman to you. She deals out more cards. You are cheating on your boyfriend. My brown skin flushes red. No. I'm not. You are, she insists. I see a man that you are spending a lot of time with. Yes, perhaps no sex, but you love him. I can't think of anything to say. His name is Jack. I work with him. He also works for the government. Do not tell your boyfriend, she orders. He will break up with you. I was going to tell him, I whisper. We have always been honest with each other. Honesty is for children. You are not a child. My first thought is stupidity, but I continue to listen. Constance tells me to imagine white light around me. She gives me the names of two books to read, Louise Hayes You Can Heal Your Life, and Zania Roman's Spiritual Growth. I already have a book by Zania Roman, Personal Power Through Awareness. I have never read it. A black female therapist I saw while I was in my second year of university recommended it. Leaning towards me from the other side of the small table, Constance tips the cards back into the wooden box. You should meditate, she says. Do you know how to meditate? 
I stare at the wooden box, feeling sad that the pretty pictures are gone. What is that? It is when you keep completely still and you do not think about anything. She shifts her body. You keep your feet flat on the floor, you close your eyes and you. Imagine that white light surrounds you. You imagine that white light is emanating from you and flowing out all around you. This is how you recreate yourself as an empty vessel so the positive forces from the higher world can enter you. This way you can channel. Channel? Yes, channel. Everything I do is channeling, she explains. I receive all of my guidance from my highest level of guides. Her voice becomes lighter and hits my ears like a bubble then pops. Your highest level guides will direct you in everything that you do. Is this like prayer? Constance looks grim. I do not believe in one God. I believe in the universe. I believe that everything happens through the Almighty of the universe and we are all directed through our highest level of guides if we hold clear energy. You need to lighten your energy. Constance tells me that I too can learn to channel and become a psychic, so that I can answer my own questions. I buy many books after the first two. I begin to meditate every day and become a vegetarian like Constance. I want to be just like her. Constance is the happiest person I know. Back to Toronto. I follow all of Constance's instructions and one month later I accept a job offer in Toronto. I am back at the CBC as a diversity journalist for radio and TV. I work 9 to 5, then catch the 506th street car that takes me east to the corner of Gerald and Ashdale in Little India. Home a studio apartment with a flat green carpet, a shower stall without a tub, a kitchen with a hot plate and a beer-sized fridge, and off the kitchen, a balcony bigger than the entire apartment. I change from the long pastel-colored dress I wore to work into my beige sweatshirt and jogging tights. Six times a week I jog. Before I leave, I strap a leather money purse around my waist and stuff $20 in my driver's license inside one of the pockets. I use the $20 to buy a bottle of Woodbridge red wine while I am out. Every night, I start drinking as soon as I am back from my run. Every night, I finish the bottle, drinking from dollar store wine glasses. Only once do I wonder why I don't he simply chug from the bottle. But drinking from a glass is what my sister calls broughtupsy. Every night, I drink and practice reading the Rider Waite tarot cards. On work nights, I go to bed no later than 11 p.m. I break up with my boyfriend Noel. Or rather, he breaks up with me when he reads my journal and finds out about Jack. I send Constance questions and money, and she tells me that a king of wands will enter my life. I imagine that a man I work with at the CBC, my soulmate will help me make it to the top of the ladder of success. Over the next year, I spend a lot of money on long-distance phone calls to Constance. I call to ask her questions about every aspect of my life. What should I wear? Where should I live? I ask about coworkers. I present Constance with a name and she tells me about that person from the name alone. This information helps me decide who I will and who I will not spend time with. My diversity journalist contract with the CBC is to end in September. I sit in meetings with the feeling of having digested rancid popcorn. Okay. Donna, what are your ideas for tomorrow morning's show? My boss asks. Cold and strange stares are thrown like darts at the heart of my eyes. Well I fixate my attention on something to distract myself.
The white moonstone ring on the fourth finger of my left hand needs to be turned. There is a powwow going on in. I am cut off. We've done it before. Days, weeks, months, same thing. I call Constance. Do you think they are going to continue my contract? They will, they will, she breathes into the phone from Ottawa. You can stay at the CBC forever, if you so choose. The rancid popcorn feeling in my stomach eases. Angels on the ceiling. If I kill the doctors, can I plead insanity? They keep asking me such silly questions. How long are you going to keep me locked up here? I scream at them. Until you calm down, they answer. They will not even tell me why I am being kept locked up. All I've been told is that they think I am schizophrenic. What does that mean, anyway? I spoke to Constance last Friday. She told me to write a list of all my wants and then to cut the list into squares so that each of my wants is on a separate piece of paper. Then, she said, go into a meditation and burn all the pieces. This will make all your wants come true. It sounds like a witch chess trick to me and I know that Constance is into witchcraft. I decide to give it a try. I need the supplies first, so I go on a shopping spree. I buy a gold pen, scissors and paper, a cup to burn the pieces of paper in and a foldable wooden table with square designs. I am left with only $100 in my bank account. My rent is due and no paycheck is coming. I go home with all this stuff and write all my wants on a piece of paper. I want a successful career as a television and radio diversity producer. I want a beautiful man to enter my life and for us to have a deep, passionate relationship. I want a big, spacious, beautiful apartment with low rent, as soon as possible, with lots of privacy. If you work fast, things will come fast, my higher-level guides tell me. I cut my list of wants into small squares. I turn on the stereo that I received from my mother for graduating from high school and insert a cassette of Gregorian chants. At my new wooden table, I light white candles with matches from my favorite Indian restaurant, then pull out a stick of the promised land incense I bought at the Eaton Center, light the tip and softly place it in the holder. I pick up two small brass bells joined by a thin black rope, clash them together and ask for my high-level guides to assist me in my meditation. I burn the squares of paper and I meditate. I meditate for days. I do not eat. I drink only water. I hope to achieve a higher spiritual awareness. I want to open up all my chakras. I want my failing eyesight to be restored. I want a miracle to happen, for the Creator to prove His existence to me. In the silence of my apartment, I lie on the futon and gently sing a line from John Lennon's song Imagine. Imagine all of the people, living life in peace. I look up at the yellow walls of my kitchen and see a hazy figure with long wisps of hair to the shoulders and shadowy white smoke skin. Glasses appear around holes in the smoke that look like eyes. He joins me and sings. You, you may say I am a dreamer. But I am not the only one. I hope someday you will join us. And the world will live as one. I know that in my state of super-awareness I connect to all other human beings who live as Constance does. I think about people like her who are free and easy, fulfilling their dreams, who have money and independence, and still do good work that helps others. The smoke shifts to longer spirals of hair, 
A slighter body and long fingers. Janice. Joplin sings. Oh Lord want you buy me a Mercedes Benz. My friends all drive Porskis, I must make amends. The smoke shifts again. A fuller body. Hair soft and ruffled like frilly yellow panties. Half-closed eyes and full lips lean toward me and say, Imperfection is beauty, madness is genius and it's better to be absolutely ridiculous than absolutely boring. Marilyn Monroe, I think, as I gawk at the fading image. I think my eyes may roll to the back of my head. The smoke turns blood red. It fills my vagina, ejaculates over the walls and streams down like rain. The inner walls of my vagina bleed. I feel a push from low in my stomach to the end of my root chakra. By Saturday at least I think it's Saturday I dream that I'm sending light to a mediation meeting on the Quebec referendum. The mediators come dancing in the streets to thank me for sending this light that will help keep Canada together. They want to take me out of bed and have me dance too. I believe my new network of friends and my soulmate from the CBC are among them. I go to my window and talk to the crowd. The masses of people are holding my soulmate down because it's too early to consummate our marriage. I go outside to the balcony and sit on my meditation chair. The rush of voices from below fills my head. Naked, I open my arms to them. I hold them in the air for three moments and then, in an instant, I place them on my lap and close my eyes. I meditate for peace and happiness. The birds chirp with me just as they do on the Nine of Pentacles. King of Pentacles. The doctors force me out of my small room to a bed on the psychiatric ward. My father comes to visit me, smelling high of cologne. He tells me that I must look only at the last two years to explain my breakdown. This is what I call it my breakdown. He tells me that he once had a nervous breakdown too, at 16, when he attended boarding school. He tells me that his late brother Jack also had a breakdown. My father is like the King of Pentacles reversed, yes always manipulating me. When he last visited, I had my shamanic drumming tape on and was mined. Traveling. Energy, a spirit, comes through me. I am Piran, she says. You are an orphan, adopted by your parents. I am your real mother. I died on the day of your birth. My stomach feels full for a moment and I pick at my hair with fingers wrinkled at the joints, just like my mother my adopted mother my mind is confused. I had a dream when I was young that my mother had a twin, another woman who looked exactly like her, and although my mother is beautiful, the dream frightened me awake. My mother once told me that we were in a car crash in Uganda when I was a baby. I was asleep in the car. My father was driving. She had to pick glass out of my hair. I connect this with all the times my father took my brother, sister and me on the highway and drove the way they do on the Dukes of Hazard. I think of the stories my cousin told me about my paternal grandmother. Grandma would go digging at four in the morning. I dig deeper, deeper, tunneling through my mind, and resolve that my grandmother was trying to kill her children. That is why she went digging. I connect this thought to explain why my father always fought with my mother. He was secretly afraid that women were trying to kill him. After a while I realize that my breath is the only thing that keeps me alive. I hear my father at the door. A miracle has happened. He has come to apologize for all the things he has done. I believe my father raped my mother. There is a scar on her belly. 
It must be from him trying to butcher her. I think he slept with the Jamaican babysitter I had as a child. I think he slept with my aunt, when she lived with us after arriving from Uganda. My father has always had a brothel of women and he might very well be the father of all of my aunt's children. Maybe that is why he disliked her so much, not because he held her responsible for the death of his brother Jack in Uganda. I'm scared whenever I hear my father at the door. He wants me to go crazy. Release. The doctors keep their promise. I stay in the hospital until I calm down. It takes a week. My mother and my sister, three years younger than me, come and pick me up. They do not understand what has happened to me. I don't understand either. We agree that on December 1st I will move to my mother's house in Markham where my sister and brother live too. For now, until the end of November, they take me back to my apartment. Circles of red blood stain the flat green carpet, and the Aztec design of my duvet cover jagged black, red and cream lines on the copper background is broken by slashes of blood. A stain as big as the sun from a distant view darkens the middle of my futon, and smashes of black soot smudge the kitchen walls, the aftermath of my burned paper, my burnt wants. I feel someone at the door before I hear the rumble of knuckles against wood. I peer through the peephole and see a distorted image of my father. What do you want? I shout through the door. I have money to give you for your last month's rent. I open the door and before he can enter I pull the money from his cracked white brown hands and quickly push the door closed. I wait to hear him leave. My eyes are watery. I creep to the door of my large balcony and peek out to make sure that he leaves. Noticing that my aloe plants are dying, I pick up the white plastic watering can and fill it with cold water at the sink, then step outside to water them. Donna. I hear a voice call from below. You are back home. I look down over the side of the balcony at the 5 foot 7 inch, black haired man who, as of December 1st, will no longer be my landlord. Donna. He repeats my name. It is a wonder you are alive. I watched everything. You could have died. In anger I throw down the money my father just gave me. I am leaving December 1st, Mario. Before I move at the end of November, I break down again. This time the doctors diagnose bipolar affective disorder. They put me on lithium, a mood stabilizer, and risperidone, an antipsychotic drug. In early December, I settle into my mom's home. Every morning, after I shower and brush my teeth, I reach into the mirrored vanity for two lithium tablets and one risperidum tablet, then release them, like freed prisoners, into the toilet. New Year. I am back to the darkness. The idiotic red carpet is still here in the basement of my mother's house, a large space I had all to myself as a teenager. Back then I could stand the darkness but I slept a lot and was always very moody anyway. The walls of the bedroom are still painted white. A small window, about the size of a pitcher, meets the ceiling line. The poster of a peacock hangs over the headboard of my old double mattress bed. The large Michael Jackson postcard with the King of Pop standing in front of a gold background, which I got at McDonald's when I was 14, hangs to the right of my dresser. Made of white painted wood, the dresser holds the few clothes that still fit me after I have lost so much weight. Other old clothes hang in the closet like the skeleton my frame has become. My mother encourages me to eat, but I keep my mouth shut. 
I meditate every day in front of my mother's house. I sit on a small plastic garden chair with the Sony CD Walkman in my hands and headphones, which one of my former bosses at the CBC gave me, over my ears. Listening to Whitney Houston's exhale, I let out a soft choop and hum to the music. I feel a presence beside me and I'm riveted back to a state of fear. What are you doing? Mom asks as she takes out the garbage. Meditating, I spit out. Sounds foolish to me. On Christmas Eve day, I take public transit downtown to the Omega Bookstore in Yorkville where I purchase my library of New Age books. I buy a smaller version of the Rider Waite Tarot deck that I used with Constance. I make my way back to my mother's house on the Warden 68 bus and get off at Steele's Avenue. I run, taking a shortcut home, and almost slip on some ice, but I catch my balance on a wooden fence. No one is home. My sister and my mother are out, I don't see nowhere. I close my basement bedroom door and take the tarot cards out of the bookstore bag. Still wearing my coat, I sit on the bed and open the box. For hours and hours and hours I cast out the cards like runes, desperately turning out different destiny after different. Destiny. The hairs all over my body unfurl from curl to straight. I stare at the array of Celtic crosses I create. I rarely blink. What are you doing? My mother's yell snaps me back to reality. I say nothing. I am embarrassed. I am caught at something I know my mother and her Methodist upbringing does not approve of. She still wears her gloves and coat as she gathers the cards and leaves my room. I follow her outside to the garage where she tosses the tarot cards into a big black garbage can. On Christmas Day, I refuse to come out of my room. I spend it crying. On Boxing Day, my Aunt Lily comes to the house, at my father's request. I peek out the window and see her in a puffy black coat that hangs past her knees. When she stands in the doorway, her jerry-curled hair almost reaches the top of the frame. She wears gold earrings. Other than the bright red lipstick on her lips, her flawless dark brown skin is untouched by makeup. She looks at the pink pajamas I wear and says, Donna, get dressed into something long. Get ready quickly. The service will start soon. Aunt Lily wants to take me to church. I love my aunt so I agree to go with her. But I hate my mom after she tossed out my tarot cards. Aunt Lily drives me to the church. We quietly enter and I see white, black, brown, yellow and red faces all around me all dressed in their perfect best for the Lord. I don't see any stained glass, but I do see a video camera set up beside a small musical band on the minister's stage. I feel restless as the minister speaks so I get up and roam around the inclining rows of pews. When the band plays, I dance at the back of the church. Aunt Lily yells at me to sit down. After the service, Aunt Lily takes me to a mid-sized room at the back of the stage to see the minister. He is surrounded by members of his flock. Dressed in black with a white collar, the minister places his brown hands on my shoulders. Aunt Lily gets up close to him and whispers something in his ear that I can tea hear. He nods his head and she backs away. His sharp black eyes stab into mine. You are ill, my child? I nod. The minister rests his hands on the top of my head. The devil has taken a hold of you, he says. The devil has taken a hold of your mind. The devil has taken a hold of your heart. 
The devil has taken a hold of your soul. It is demons that enter inside of us that make us ill, especially of the mind. He takes his hands off my head and opens his arms. Let these demons come out. An emotional rocket trips through my core. I tremble and cry. Let these demons come out, he shouts again, then raises his arms above my head. In the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost I command the devil to leave your body. I shut my mouth to keep from screaming. I push his intrusive arms away and run out of the room. Aunt Lily chases after me and shouts at me from the front of the church to come back. I look up the street and around the church. I have no idea where I am. I do not know where to go. Moments later, an ambulance stops and picks me up. In her car, Aunt Lily follows behind the ambulance to Scarborough Grace Hospital. I spend New Year's Day of 1996 inside another cell of four metallic grey walls. A black couple, visiting their son, beams their smiles at me. You have so much potential, dear, they tell me. This is a shame, an honest shame. CBC. I return to my mother's house and slip back down to the darkness of the basement. My thoughts hiss like the furnace I sleep so close to at night. Every morning I release my medication into the toilet. Every afternoon I release my medication into the toilet. Every evening I release my medication into the toilet. Getting rid of my medication is the only thing I focus on. After three weeks of tossing my pills into the toilet, I am hospitalized for the fourth time on January 27, 1996. New doctors at Scarborough Grace Hospital change my mood stabilizer to a pivot. They also give me Glenaise Epam for anxiety. St. Mike's Hospital had white linoleum flooring in the halls and in the rooms. Scarborough Grace has grey carpet. My mom visits me and tells me that I got a call from the CBC National TV newsroom in Toronto for a job interview, to be an editorial assistant. I have yet to be officially released from the hospital when I go to the interview to meet with Catherine Goya, one of the newsroom bosses. Who is your favorite journalist on the national? She asks. I tell her Jason Moskovich because he is really the only one I know. Breaking down does not allow a lot of time for TV watching. Ms. Goya seems pleased by my answer. Jason must be a friend of hers or maybe she is responsible for hiring him. She gives me a writing test. I write a story about a woman stuck in a car wash who escapes by using her cell phone. Ms. Goya reads over my story and tells me that I write. Well. Then she picks up my resume. There is a gap in your employment history, she says. You haven't been working for three months. Why not? Rather than tell Ms. Goya some elaborate lie or tell her that I can't find work. Which wouldn't be true I tell her the truth, or at least half of the truth. I've been suffering from depression. I actually came out of the hospital just to be at this interview. Silence. Many women suffer from depression, Donna. When would you be able to start if we offer you the position? Her assistant, Carolyn, calls me a few days later to tell me that, despite stiff competition, I have the job. My doctor is thrilled. He is a Indian Canadian man who has diagnosed me with schizoaffective disorder a cross between manic depression and schizophrenia. The doctor says jobs give people purpose. My friends Stephen, William and Nancy are thrilled, too. 
When I return to my mother's home, my brother begrudgingly agrees to switch rooms with me. I take his room on the third floor and he takes mine in the basement so that I will have more light to help lift my depression. I am back at the CBC and I should be happy. I'm greatly disappointed. In my previous job as a diversity journalist, I worked in both radio and television, even though I mainly set up editorial boards on diverse communities and produced only a few stories. Now I have been downgraded to editorial assistant. I work shifts, running scripts between the newsroom and studios, as well as operating the teleprompter. I take the new medication the doctor has prescribed and my arms, thighs and stomach expand. But the running back and forth in the national newsroom helps keep them tight. Life at home is stressful. I am 23 and have lost my independence. I find living at home, after I have been on my own since undergraduate school, since I was 18, very difficult. My family is shattered by my health. My brother and sister stay away from me. Slow down. I refuse to take the medication the new doctor prescribed. Constance told me it would make me weak. I cannot sleep. The irregular shifts are hard to deal with. I can't make myself go to work today. So I call in sick. Carolyn? Yes, is this Donna? Yes. I start to cry. Carolyn, I feel awful. I can't come into work. Silence. Donna, that's fine. I sob into the phone. I am sorry. Donna, it's fine, she assures me. It is fine. Just come in when you are feeling better. The last thing Carolyn hears are my sobs. After I hang up, I crawl back into bed and fall into a fitful sleep. I wake up later in the evening and ask my mother for the keys to her car. I drive in a manic daze to Stephen and William S. house. They let me crash there. Stephen cooks food for me but I refuse to eat. William smokes pot with his girlfriend Sarah, while I talk fast and furious about being a Ugandan princess. I ask myself and the others why the fuck I am in Canada when I'm a queen in Uganda. William and Sarah wish me good night and climb the stairs to William's loft bedroom. I lie on the couch and wipe tears from my cheeks. My friend Nancy, who is dating Stephen, comes by to console me. She once tried setting me up with Stephen, before she dated him, but there was no spark between us and nothing came of it. Donna, why are you crying? I don't speak. I just keep crying. Nancy cradles me. Just cry, sweetheart, she says softly. Whatever it is, it will be okay. On the second night of my stay, Stephen sleeps on the couch so that I can have his bed. I try to seduce him. I am confused. He treats me so well that I think we should be together. I'm so needy for comfort and affection. I move my brown hand slowly over the almost translucent white skin of his arm. Stephen stirs awake and opens one eye. Donna? He looks at me tiredly. What are you doing? I snap my hand away. My hand goes to my nose. I pick out some snot and wipe it on the Levi jeans I am sleeping in. Stephen? Didn't we go on a date? The stiffness around his mouth softens. Yes, Donna, he responds. Remember, I am dating Nancy now. I know, I... No. I just thought. The next day, without anything being said, Nancy and William take me to Scarborough Grace Hospital.
The doctor on staff tries to give me a whole bunch of drugs that I refuse. I creep off the gunny they ordered me to lie on and stalk out of the hospital. Nancy and William run down Birchmound Avenue and catch me. I tell them I want to go to a black bookstore on Bathurst Street in downtown Toronto. Stephen picks us up in his old blue Mercedes-Benz. We drop William off at work at Frontario on the drive to the bookstore. Nancy sits tightly beside me in the back seat, as though to restrain me. In the store, I sit by the children's book section on a child's chair, all 5 feet 10 inches and 130 pounds of me, and cry. Nancy and Stephen lead me outside and then Stephen drives me to my father's house. Nancy does not come. I don't know where she went. On the way to my father's, I notice a house up for sale. Stephen, look. I point to the sign. That house is for sale. He looks and nods. I touch his arm this time in friendship. Stephen, I am going to buy that house. I am going to buy it, I tell him. I am going to get my brother out of my dad's house and he and my sister and I can all live together in that house. Finally, the fighting in my family will end. I practically raise Robert and Karen anyway. My father wants me to go back to the hospital. When I refuse, he tries to keep me inside. I refuse it too, and threaten to jump off his balcony. He almost hits me. When I finally manage to get out, Stephen convinces me to let him drive me to the hospital. I rage as I get out of the car outside of emergency. I rant and rave as I walk in the opposite direction of the hospital. The police stop me near the Willesley subway station and an ambulance takes me back. I rant as they bring me through the doors. I rage at the orderlies who try to put me in restrained small bondage and slavery. I stand on top of a counter to escape their determined efforts. We need to slow down this life. I shout. We are going too fast. Things need to go slower. Life is too fast. All this technology is dangerous. We need to slow down. I rant when they move me to an isolation room. I scream that this makes it difficult for my godmother, Margaret, to visit me. I rant at them for my illness. I rage at them because I am sick. Changing diagnosis. My fifth breakdown puts me back in Scarborough Grace Hospital at the end of February, 1996. The mix of lithium, risperidin and clonazepam that they force me to swallow every morning is an acidic punishment my doctor says I need to take for life. The first time I was told that I am schizophrenic, then they said that I have schizoaffective disorder, now the diagnosis has changed to manic depression. Resting in my hospital bed, I look up and am surprised to see my boss, Carolyn, beside me. Her orthopedic shoes were silent on the carpeted floors. Hi, Donna. Hi, Carolyn, I say. Thank you for coming. She looks at me closely. How are you doing? I feel fine, but they want to let me out. She steps closer and touches her silver wine glasses. I see nothing wrong with you, either. You should come back to work soon. It's probably all the shift work that upset you. I will put you on a regular shift in the evenings, starting at 6 p.m., I promise. You can work until 2 a.m. Carolyn tells me that she will give me the title of evening researcher. This feeds my ego and, despite the doctor's order, I sign myself out of the hospital after only three days. In response, 
The doctor informs me that he will never treat me again. I go back to work at the CBC, but sleeping and waking up remains a struggle. I follow up with a female doctor, a psychiatrist, who asks me to call her Zara. I see her once a week at St. Mike's. I feel like a hospital refugee, now that I have St. Michael's and Scarborough Grace Hospitals on my health resume. Sarah cuts my MEDS back to only lithium. Then, she goes on sabbatical without telling me. I go off the lithium two weeks later. 3. I manage to stay well for six months without medication and without seeing a psychiatrist. In the newsroom, I make friends with Rosie and Diane, who I know from my undergraduate journalism days at Carleton University, and Mary, who I train as an editorial assistant. In the spring, Rosie decides she wants to spend the summer in Ottawa. She sublets her spacious one-bedroom condo to me for $300 a month. It is furnished, I only need to bring my clothes. In the annex, just steps away from the St. George subway station, undecorated in dark green, like nature, the condo is perfect for me. My regained independence and my Sunday brunches with Diane and Casey, another new friend, make life very stable. Despite all this, I do not enjoy my job at the CBC. It's mundane and dull. I need a challenge. I make plans to go to Uganda, a country I always dreamed of returning to. I was just a baby the last time I was there and have no memories of the place. My dad discourages the visit. He warns me I will get killed. This does not deter me because he tells me this while drunk. The only way I am going to be allowed to visit Uganda is to lie, so I tell my father that I am going with Emily, a white friend from work. Emily really does want to go to Africa, but can tea because she doesn't have the money. Convinced that I'm going with Emily, my father gives me the money to go and sets me up with my uncle Edward, head of the biochemistry department at May Career University in Kampala, the capital of Uganda, to be a lecturer in the mass communications department. I am all set to leave at the end of September, 1996, in time for the school year to start at May Career. I will teach radio and television. I give my notice to the CBC just as a permanent editorial assistant position opens up, a position many people thought would be offered to me. Instead Mary, who I trained, gets the job. But that's okay. I plan to get other work in Uganda and hope to freelance. I contact media outlets in Toronto and buy a Hi8 camera so I can do video work. My friends from the CBC throw a going away party for me, and my entire family comes to the airport to say goodbye. I fly British Airways, business class, after I complained about not getting a window seat. I board the plane in a good state of mental health without medication and without the care of a psychiatrist just by being free.